Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. This week's Eccentric Minute is the K-Box Kickstand RDL. This is an exercise that ticks a lot of boxes for me. We're looking at single leg strength, we're looking at posterior chain strength, and we're looking at anti-rotary stability all in one exercise. Uh, for this one, I like to do it with my back foot on the toe plate that comes with the K-Box. This is something that's really helped me when it comes to being able to sit more into that front leg's hip. Uh, I like to set my foot right even with where the tether comes up from the K-Box and then give it a good old kick back, push your hips back, keep your shoulders square, and really stretch into that hamstring and the hip of the front leg. From there, we're just trying to drive that foot down, pull our hips through, and again, keeping that posture and trying not to drop our shoulders. Give this one a try. I'm sure it's one that you and your athletes are going to love and see great results from. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world, such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmot, William Wayland, James the Thinker Smith, and Kirwenham Flat. Well, you can find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well, all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over a hundred different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash CVASPS to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Doc, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, listen, man, I, I'm fired up for this. And, and for the people that are listening now, this is... This is kind of our, our take two. We ended up talking for about an hour plus a week ago before we got this down. So I'm fired up that A, I hit record, and B, that we get to rap about this. But before we get going too far into this, Doc, can let the three quarters of a human that doesn't know who you are, where you're at, and how you got up there. Uh, well, like most of us, you know, it started off playing sports when I was when I was younger. But of course, uh, the situation was is I'm not exactly the most physically gifted person in the world. You know, I'm I'm rocking about you know five six five seven somewhere between there, and I'm you know maybe maybe 70 kilos on a good day but you know um that being said you know you got to find i had to find a way to be competitive with the people who were more physically gifted so from there um i went to uw oshkosh here in wisconsin to get my undergrad masters at uw lacrosse and then i went and studied under mike stone at uh, east tennessee state and then from there you know i taught one year in Pennsylvania, and now I'm back in Wisconsin at Carroll University. Yeah, and it's funny, on a day that we're talking, and it's 22 degrees in Richmond, Virginia, I feel like we're right next door to each other, because uh, winter came out of nowhere, it just like 2020 slapped us in the face last night, so it's like, what in the world? Yeah, it seems to be 2020 slapping us in the face every day, but the weather doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. But, you know, Doc, like what we were talking about before, 
I think that this is something that's really important because I think this is something that both ends of the spectrum in all three directions, when we're talking about research, training, and rehabilitation, kind of have this level of borderline fake confusion. And that's understanding and identifying transfer and how we can sit here and come up with things and ways for us to evaluate what we're doing. And this is really kind of your bread and butter. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the confusion behind transfer kind of stems from, you know, I guess the, the original thought is, well, does it look like it? Well, that's what we should do in the weight room then. Um, and I think we get in trouble, we get ourselves in trouble a little bit just because we try to train the sport in the weight room when in reality, we're training movements in the weight room. Do the movements then transfer? We hope so. But again, you know, we, we could make the argument all day long that the that sprinters, for example, spend the vast majority of their time on a single leg. Well, does that mean that they should be doing everything single leg? Well, depending on who you read, it's possible. But at the same time, if you're looking for a true exercise stimulus, you're probably going to be doing bilateral work in addition to unilateral work. Um, from a rehab setting, you know, eventually we have to work from very basic to something that's a bit more complex so that they can return to play. But again, it comes down to the exercise stimulus in the end. What are you giving them? What are they capable of? And then as we're talking about, how does that then transfer to getting them to return to play? Yeah. And I think that, you know, being, this will be interesting because it's, you know, the, the stone camp and the yeses camp on the same call talking about this. I think that where people confuse the Verkashansky, um definition is that they look at things and they think same muscles doing the same actions with the same contraction at the same speed. And they think it has to be dribbling a medicine ball or chest passing a medicine ball is the only way for upper body transfer to basketball. Right. Or they think um, specific angles of how you perform different knee lifts or whatever are the only way that it transfers. When in reality, there's a difference between adapting the part whole method and trying to mimic sporting actions in the weight room. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, if you know if you're getting into something as complex as like potentiation complexes, you may have to be that fine when it comes to designing the protocols, because there's an abundance of literature. I did my dissertation on potentiation, and it is a web of there's good stuff, there's kind of poorly designed protocols, but then there's protocols designed with weaker people, and it, they're kind of set up for for failure. But what there's been projects out there that they'll say, okay, we're going to back squat and we're going to try to potentiate, or sorry, we're going to do a, you know, a quarter squat concentric only. And then we're going to try to potentiate a counter movement jump. Well, you did a concentric only action. A counter movement jump has eccentric and concentric. It's performed at a deeper depth as a counter movement. Actually potentiate or the movement that you're trying to potentiate. Um, again, you know, I think we're limited in that regard from a research standpoint, but again, practically speaking, is it going to transfer? 
we don't know because the other thing with and i don't want to get on a rant of potentiation stuff here but you know potentiation complexes are geared really for strength or strength power phases people who try to do it all year round you're kind of you're kind of setting yourself up for failure yeah but at the same time too that's another thing that there's a lot of kind of that fake confusion of right where it's like well we can do this all year or we can do this with our 12 year old swimmers because they need to have these you know massive outputs off the wall and it's like well maybe if they're 12 a leg press actually wouldn't be awful for them because they don't know what they're doing or even like a goblet squat wouldn't be awful for them because they don't know what they're doing yeah, one of the one of the projects I actually have my undergraduates do is they get assigned a random athlete. And when I say random, it can be anything from like a middle school cross country runner to a rugby player in college. So the whole point of the project is to say, okay, how are you going to design resistance training phases that are going to be specific to these people? Now, specificity is one thing, because you could say exercises you could say metabolically you could say all sorts of things to get the transfer that you want but end of the day with the with the untrained people that you were talking about it really doesn't matter what you give them you know if are you enhancing general strength are you enhancing work capacity those are the things that are going to transfer with people who are less trained or novices but as you become more experienced, then you have to be a little bit more fine when it comes to how you're going to get that novel stimulus for the person so that they continue to improve. Yeah, man. And I, I think that that's a great lead in there because in both of our situations, for the most part, we're dealing with college athletes who, again, going back to where you learned from, that's going to be a middle level athlete almost no matter what, right? Yeah. The, the classification schemes that have been identified but again for some reason people still get confused on but that's more of a beers on the table conversation um when we look at that how are you now identifying transfer what needs to improve and how to do it yeah i mean we we have a whole testing battery with our athletes here at carroll you know we do everything from you know, anthropometrics, body composition. We look at vertical jumps, both a unloaded and loaded uh, counter movement jump. We've done squat jumps as well. Um, we do a 10 and 20 yard sprint, a 505 change direction or some sort of um, agility based test, change of direction test. Uh, we also have our strength measurements. We use uh, our training in the weight room as some of our testing. So really what we're doing is we're creating a profile to figure out where are they lacking? Now, where are they lacking in relation to their team? Where are they lacking in relation to their position? But also we look at it from like a radar plot standpoint is what does a, you know an all conference uh, front row volleyball player look like? The, here are their characteristics. Now, if you wanna to get to this level, this is where they were at. So we use that as kind of our benchmarks and we have a handful of variables that we look at regularly you know i work primarily with volleyball and one of the metrics that we look at regularly is um, whether it's their relative peak power you know watts per kilo are we looking at their jump height are we looking at their um, 
the reactive strength index modified off the floor, you know, how quickly they get off the floor in relation to how high they jump. So we look at all of those, but I look at them almost on a weekly basis if we're doing weekly testing. And the things that I'm looking for is, you know, if we're in a high volume phase of training, I expect things like power and RSI mod to decrease. And the reason why is they're fatigued, they're getting tired. Now with the freshmen, it's a little bit different. I almost expect them to go up because they haven't done it before. So providing them structure in their training program, it really doesn't matter what I give them, they're going to continue to improve. But the more experienced people, what I wanna see is, are they responding to the training that I, in a way that I want them to respond? And if they're not, then I need to change that exercise stimulus for them so that I can get them to where I want. Um, I get, you know, for example, I will get um, some of the, some of the girls will get really strong where they'll end up being 1.6, maybe 1.7 times their body weight in terms of a squat. And as a result of that, um, they start to respond to, you know, your standard um, loading stimuli a little bit different compared to the other athletes that I have. So I have to start to incorporate things that are a little bit faster for them and lighter um, so that we focus more on that speed strength component rather than that strength speed component. Fact of the matter is, is the majority of the athletes that we work with here are developmental. And what I mean by that is they haven't gotten to that phase where they have that strength reserve where we can start to push them in more of that power-based, ballistic-based type program. So most of their program focuses on strictly getting stronger and sprinkling in the power exercises here and there. I dig that, man. And I think that something that you said in there that was pretty cool is you talk about how you're modeling um, athletes. So I guess that my next question would be, how does that drive decisions, comma, how does that then allow you to identify what he or she may be exceptional at? And does that then dictate even more of the decisions? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, for the first part is kind of how does it drive decisions? Well, we have the relationships with a number of our coaches that, uh, especially the volleyball coach, just because we monitor them, generally speaking, more frequently. They train in the lab, so it's easy. You know, hop on the force plates, we'll jump quick, and then we'll start training. Um, but I can take that data that I get and look at trends. And the trends is what I'm primarily looking at is, are we increasing, are we decreasing? Are we within that 5%? Are we, you know, are we within that 10% depending on what variable we're looking at? Because if we're trending down and when we're supposed to be trending up, the athlete, in my opinion, is fatigued. And what I'll do is I end up sending that information to the coach. And from a decision-based standpoint, I supply the coach with the information that she needs. And I say, look, we may have to back this person off because they look like they're fatigued. And as a result, real time, I can actually adjust their training on the spot. You know, maybe they do one less set of every exercise. Maybe they eliminate one exercise altogether just to get their legs back uh, and their central nervous system to recover. And um, I'm sorry, what was the second part to that question? So like, let's say you've got an athlete who is an ex ex 
like you're looking at your your model or your spider graph or whatever it may be and you have an athlete that's exceptional at one thing so for example my point guard would be exceptionally elastic versus what we have seen in the past how does the exceptionalness of the individual drive training like is that something that you look at that we need to harness more is that something that you look at as we just need to leave it alone like how do you handle that in that situation um we haven't had many athletes in that situation here however we have had athletes at previous institutions in that situation where you have your player of the, the conference player of the year you know all conference first team tournament player of the year we'll look at their profiles and we'll pretty much get to the point and say they are at their quote unquote optimal profile. So how do we maintain that profile and possibly train any weaknesses that they may have to improve them even further? So maybe they have just a ridiculous power output, their strength is good, but they may be a little bit slow. Well, let's focus on that speed component while maintaining these other characteristics. So we're still using a combined methods approach where we have, you know, those that heavy and light kind of emphasis. But at that point, when they're at their, you know, their optimal profile, we're looking to maintain the characteristics that underlie everything else. So if their strength is there, we're going to maintain and or gain with their strength. But we're then going to focus on the speed component if that's what they're lacking. If that's not what they're lacking in, then we'll take a different approach. The fact of the matter is, is you have athletes and positions that are strength speed people. You have those who are speed strength people. So are they moving under a heavy load? Are they moving under no load? And that's kind of what we have to take into consideration when we are designing these individualized programs. So that's kind of the approach that we take. No, man, I dig it. I think that's great because, uh, you know, I think all too often what coaches tend to be afraid of is that the outliers are the outliers for a reason. And they're there participating in the sport, possibly because of what their outliers at. So we like to look at what we can fix. When in reality, maybe the fixing isn't what we need to do maybe we need to continue to allow them to exploit what makes them exceptional to a greater level absolutely yeah i mean we we you know this is a classic phrase but sports aren't played slowly so if we have an, an individual who is just naturally gifted as you mentioned your basketball players naturally elastic we're not trying to take that away from them what we're trying to do is work on the characteristics that got them to that point. And if there is a weakness that we can fine tune a little bit, that's what we need to focus on because we're not trying to make these people slow, you know, by, uh, by weight training. And generally speaking, weight training is not gonna make you super slow unless you're just grinding out slow repetitions all the time. But as long as you're varying loads where you have heavy stuff, light stuff, ballistic stuff, you know, you add in your sprint based work where you're working both ends of that force velocity curve, you're going to be able to work that profile um, that they've already developed. So then let's talk about how these profiles come about and how these models that you're building of what, you know, the, the athlete should look like. 
talk to us about that process and how that gets going. And really, I think the big one is how many athletes do you think you needed till you were like, all right, we might have an idea. We're, yeah, we're still in the process um, because to be honest, so this is my fifth year here at Carroll. We didn't start doing this type of monitoring until about maybe a year ago or two years ago, maybe. Um, one, because we didn't have the equipment. Two, we didn't have the manpower because prior to our graduate program being revamped, um, we, with this year we have 10 grad students. Prior to that, the most we had was um, three or six, depending on the class. So as a result of that, we just, we just didn't have the manpower. I'm a full-time faculty member. I can only do so much, um, you know, with the addition of a couple people helping on the side. But uh, how we develop them, what we're doing is we are essentially developing a baseline for what, where the team, where the individual is going to be. And we need a lot of data to be able to do that. So regular testing, frequent testing is the goal, first of all. But then what we end up doing is um, we end up developing these radar plots for individuals taking uh, the team average, we figure out what the team best is based on position or whatever, and then we um, put the athlete themselves on there. And we're looking at how far away from that average are they? And you know, we're looking at it purely from a statistics standpoint, we're talking about uh, Z-scores. So how far away from that, from that average are they? Purely from a practical standpoint, the coaches may or may not be interested. You know, they'll look at the they'll look at the graph, and that's all they'll look at. Absolutely fine, as long as they understand that it, being farther out this way is a good thing. Being you know in this way is probably a better thing. So, uh, in that regard, we we give the coaches the information that they want in the most simplistic form that they need. Uh, but what we also have done is we'll sit down and talk with them and say, okay this is where this person is. They may be above the average here, but this is what we need to work on. And then we start to develop strategies of how we can do that. So that's the, pro that's the approach that we're taking right now. And it's only going to continue to develop as we um, push one of the initiatives at our university, which is developing a performance institute. That sounds fun. It's fun, but it's, so it's, you know, it's been a process over the past number of years, but we, uh, um, you know, we, it's been in front of the president, the president approved it, it's on this university strategic plan, so it's supposed to launch um, fairly soon here, so we're, we're excited. So as you continue to collect data, how is this now expanding, and how is, I can't believe you were had to try to do this like five kids on the YouTube is doing that. That would have been like exorcist head spinning to try to do that. But how does this now, as your ability to collect data has expanded, how has this expanded what you're able to do? And how is that manipulated isn't the word. How has that altered how the numbers look and the directions that you're going when it comes to the preparation pro, uh, programs. I, I, I think above all else, it, it enhances the buy-in of the coaches and the athletes because number one, they see what, they, what they're capable of or not capable of. You know, 
not to say that we have a lot of a lot of athletes that are like this, but you you have an athlete comes in who thinks they're you know God's gift to whatever sport that they're playing, and then you end up in a situation and be like, these are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. You know, did you put forth the effort? That's the first thing. You know, if we're doing max effort vertical jumps and you put in half effort, yeah, then you're going to get half effort numbers. But it's nice to see the buy-in from the coaches because they see, they're now seeing the value in it. We moved into a new conference five years ago and we're getting to the point now being a very small, you know, or a private institution where um, it's not enough to just show up and compete anymore. You have to take every possible uh, preparation measure you can, whether it is the, um, the physical preparation, the tactical preparation. Um, but what we're doing and, you know, we're supplying coaches with information that they haven't had before. So right now, uh, getting the buy-in from everybody is what is going to enhance our ability to do this. And the thing is, is once the athletes see it and they're like, oh, well, this person may be here, this is where I want to be. Because if I, can, if I go and compare and say, well, yeah, you just cracked the top 10 all time, that's a motivating factor. I mean, we just had a jump yesterday of a freshman athlete who cracked our top 10 on volleyball for relative power output. She didn't expect it. And, you know, it was second all time. And the person who was number one all time was all conference. So talk about a motivating factor. And you can tell that the person, when they, when they lift, when they, um, when they come into train with us, they work hard, they're coachable. And what it does is it also develops that competitiveness within the team um, to see, you know, I want to beat this person. I want to beat them out for this spot. Well, you're going to have to put forth the effort they are. And now that we have the numbers, we can justify it and say, this is where you're at. At the end of the day, whatever can get them to push a little harder is just going to be something that's going to get them to go a little further. Absolutely. I mean, we all love to be in the weight room where everyone is supporting each other. You know, if someone's doing a heavy lift, it's not to say you have to stop everything you're doing. You know, everyone else just stops and watches that person. You know, the classic one RM squat or hang or, uh, you know, power clean lift where the entire team's standing around. It happens from time to time, but at the same time, we just want an atmosphere where everyone is supporting each other. And as long as athletes continue to push, you know, supplemented with that data. Absolutely. I love developing that atmosphere. I love it, man. So then let's, let's talk future here with that. Where do you see that going? Not just in the modeling and profiling you're doing with the athletes, but how do you see this driving more research so we can have better ideas? Is that the word I want of like what matters? Well, I'm going to be I'm going to be honest with you. There's a severe lack of research when it comes to Division three athletes, and that's who we're working with here. So, what we're doing, and actually what some of my grad students are doing right now, is we're taking the monitoring data that we have, and we're going to develop um, descriptive data for for the number of athletes that we have. And I mean, we'll have a you know a sample size of 300 plus, which is just unheard of when you think about some of the research projects that we have. So developing that preliminary data 
um, will hopefully help spur other institutions who are collecting similar data to kind of make that comparison. Um, so purely from a research standpoint, we can start to answer questions with these D3 athletes is to show coaches even how much strength can influence certain things, how much, um, you know, the change of direction abilities actually relate to their performance on the field. You know, what we're doing in training from, you know, a volume load standpoint, how much is that going to affect these power outputs? You know, it's all of these questions that, um, you know, to a point have been answered with, um, with higher end athletes. But again, with these more developmental athletes, we haven't answered those questions yet. And I think it's incredibly important, not only from a research standpoint, but from a practical standpoint in developing programs for these athletes, because we just don't have that data right now. And um, to be at the forefront of that, um, you know, the grad students that we have and the opportunities that we have, I mean, it's, it's seized the day right now. I dig that. I think that the closer we can get to identifying the population that we actually get to work with and find information that revolves around that, I think the better we are when it comes to growth and understanding. Because I do think when it comes to these things, I think there's two things. I think one, we at times like to get too enthralled in our shiny toys and, and measurements and this and that. And hey, man, I've completely guilty here and let it overtake some of the things that maybe we should be keeping in right where it's like we focus too much on what these metrics will will show to make us look better if that isn't too rude um and then on top of that i think that we assume way too much off of papers and things about sport x they run y distance and z number of high speed yards or whatever that's great who cares like that team's not your team like you could tell me all day well this is how barcelona plays well Lionel messi ain't walking into my weight room so i don't really care what barcelona does like yeah it's neat to have that information and to be able to do things around it but if you can't compare what they have to what you have to figure out where you need to go versus where they're going. I don't understand why anyone still trips over that stuff and is like, but that's how they do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, the, the, other, the other thing that we can look at it from purely a monitoring standpoint is we can find value in people, the athletes that are on the teams. You know, we don't have scholarships here. Everyone's technically a walk-on. So we can figure out, you know, maybe this person is better than you think they are. You know, we, we've had that situation. You know, I think it was the situation that the, uh, the person who ended up being all conference, you know, our best relative power output on our volleyball team was one of those people. They didn't necessarily have the raw skill as much as some of the other players, but they worked really hard. And it's like, look, coach, like here, here's what this person's capable of. You know, if you continue to push them on the court or on the field, whatever, maybe they're going to turn into that gem that you may that you may not have known was there. So, from that standpoint, it's a talent ID tool. Yeah, which at the end of the day, unfortunately, is happening a little too late. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Doc, this is sensational stuff. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, keep up to date with all the research you guys are doing and, and follow along with all that? Yeah, uh, social media on uh, Twitter and Instagram. It's uh, Dr. T. Sukumel. And uh, I believe in my Twitter profile, I think I have a link to my ResearchGate page, which is going to have uh, all the, generally speaking, all the full texts of the research that we've put out previously. So there's going to be more stuff coming out in the future in terms of some weightlifting stuff that we're doing, but also... Um, the more our Performance Institute gets rolling, I'll be able to promote that out and everyone can come see what we're doing and what our grad students are working on. It's awesome stuff, Doc. I truly appreciate your time. This is great. And I, uh, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing all this with us today, man. And I'm glad we could chop it up again. This is sensational. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We'll be in touch real soon, bud. Cheers.